0: to create a listener account, and in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening, so you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat, and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in American Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today, I'll be speaking with Terry Givens about her new book, Radical Empathy, Finding a Path to Bridging Racial Divides, which was published by Policy Press in 2021. Welcome, Terry. Thanks so much for having me. So just a little background on Dr. Givens before we begin. She is a professor of political science at McGill University in Montreal and the founder of Brighter Higher Ed, She received her B.A. from Stanford University and her Ph.D. from the University of California, Los Angeles. Her academic interests include radical right parties, immigration politics, and the politics of race in Europe. She has conducted extensive research in Europe, including in France, Germany, Austria, Denmark, and the U.K. She is author and editor of several books on immigration policy, European politics, and security, including Legislating Equality, The Politics of Anti-Discrimination Policy in Europe, published with Oxford University Press in 2014, and Immigration in the 21st Century, The Comparative Politics of Immigration Policy, which was authored with Pete Mohanty and Rachel Navarre, and published with Routledge in 2020. So Terry, can you tell us how you came to write this book?
2: Well, I've been studying issues of race uh, particularly in Europe, but of course I was having that lived experience of of race and racism in the US. And as I was looking at what was happening in terms of things like the development of, you know, thing positions like chief and um chief diversity officers and so on and and yet we still weren't making any progress. In fact, um, you know, I talk about some data about the fact that, you know, faculty, Black faculty have not increased. And yet I see more and more women and minorities going into faculty positions. And and so, of course, we've had a series of events um, from Mike Brown to, you know, now more recently, George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. And actually, I started this long before last summer when those uh, protests broke out. But I was looking at my own personal story and realizing that I had a story that's storytelling itself actually is very powerful, and that if I could tell my story, maybe it could help others to have empathy and understand how we can actually create real change. and so the the first part was understanding that I felt that empathy was an important path to uh, you know creating change, but people actually had to take action. And so I came up with the term radical empathy. Of course, I didn't invent it, but um, I decided radical empathy was important because it actually meant taking action. And so as I kind of looked back at my own family history, growing up in Spokane, Washington, you know, being a first generation college goer and all the things that I experienced, I realized there was a compelling story there about how we can understand each other better and also uh, create the change that can lead to more you know, permanent change, hopefully, in the way we deal with issues of race and ethnicity and diversity.
1: Yeah, I thought that what was particularly powerful about your book is that you place uh, your discussion of U.S. history, obviously, race relations, and you you contextualize your personal story within it, so it's multi-dimensional. But it's something that is very poignant, very powerful, and that really captivated me as a reader. And I'd like to return to, obviously, the major title of your book and theme throughout it. So this idea of radical empathy, and and you note how it involves practice, Uh, it it involves being actively involved in promoting empathy. So could you maybe talk a little bit about how then it differs more specifically from expressing empathy for an express group and and how um, we can use radical empathy as a basis for challenging uh, racial inequality in our society? Right. And let me start by explaining
2: first the six steps to radical empathy. And the first step is a willingness to be vulnerable. And so I realized that, you know, by willing myself to be vulnerable, you know, I could show people that vulnerability actually can lead to strength. But it also helps us to the second step, which is becoming grounded in who you are. And by becoming grounded in who you are, it helps you to understand where you're coming from. How, how did you grow up? What you, what is your story? What is your own? How do you visualize your identity? And the third step is um, you know a willingness to be open to the experiences of others, which is so critical um, in this day and age when we are dealing with these divides, both racial. Well, not just both. There's so many different divides. There's political divides, racial divides, you know, on all different um, you know different types of, of issues. And then um, the fourth step is actually practicing empathy. And so I talk throughout the book of ways that you can practice empathy. Number five is taking action. And then number six is creating change and building trust. And, you know, the the reason that I I go through those steps is to help people understand it's not an overnight process, right? We've been, these issues around race have been, you know, I guess one of the things that really triggered me was things like the um 1619 project and understanding that structural racism has been built into our systems going back hundreds of years and particularly against African Americans in the United States. And so in order to understand how each of us plays a role in that we have to you know walk through these different steps because for me it was a very personal thing to understand that you know there's this thing called internalized oppression where we actually take on these ideas about white supremacy without even thinking about it. Um, You know, we don't think it's strange, you know, that we, you know, for example, I live in a neighborhood in Menlo Park where there's, you know, maybe, you know, one other black family. Um, And, you know, I know why that happened. It's, you know, I know that structural racism exists, but I don't necessarily take that next step to say, what can I do to change that? And that's what was driving me crazy to a certain extent, especially with the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, my neighbors, especially after George Floyd, were putting out their signs in their front yard to say, you know, obviously, you know, they think Black Lives Matter. But what are you doing about it? Besides, you know, going and marching is great. But how do you create real change? And so I want people to really have an, an ability to understand that change isn't just about saying Black Lives Matter. It's about going out in your neighborhood and figuring out, well, why is my neighborhood all white? You know, why are the schools across the freeway not as good as the schools over here? And it's funny, you would think that's just a natural thing for people to know, but people don't think, we don't think about it in our day-to-day lives. If you think about how structural racism impacts all of us, every single one of us, every day in our day-to-day lives, that's when you really get that better understanding of, I may not be racist, but some of the actions I'm taking or some of the things that I'm supporting may end up having racist outcomes. <laughs> and so if we can understand that, then people can, you know, because I think a lot of times with these diversity trainings and so on, you know, people are like, oh, you know, I'm not racist. I don't need this training. No, it's not that you need the training. You need to understanding to open up your eyes to the fact that the structures in this country have been built um, along particular lines forever, you know, from policing to um, you know, being able to buy a home to the job you get to the education you get to the health care you get. all that's why I talk about all these different things across the chapters. So people understand it seeps into every aspect of our lives. And for some of us, we're living that every day. Um, and it's, you know, I don't call it microaggression. Either, obviously, I talk about microaggressions, but it's really aggression, period. And so that's, uh, that's why I think this is a different approach. It allows us all to see how we're we all are a part of the the problem.
1: Right. And I think uh, one of the important arguments themes running throughout your book is that this is structural. And that's why we need radical empathy, right? That Mm -hmm. simply expressing empathy is not sufficient, because it does not entail the acknowledgement of the multi level ways in which uh, racism operates. And Mm -hmm. also that, uh, again, it's it's a passive response, you know. It's it's right. it's kind of demonstrating empathy, or or you know, okay, I will donate to this charity, but it, what does it mean to actually get out and engage with individuals? What does it mean to invite these individuals over for dinner, over for lunch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. To try to understand their stories, and of course, that's another important component uh, of the book because you're telling your own story, but you're also underscoring the importance of telling these stories and listening to these stories, right? And acting mm-hmm. um, in response to them. And this kind of gets me to my next uh, question about empathetic exchanges. So you use this term mm-hmm. empathetic exchanges and, and what does that entail?
2: Well, it, it it's, you know, it's the, again, going beyond just the, I feel what you feel. Actually. Um, one of the things I talk about is, you know, I, I live by the golden rule, you know, do unto others, but actually it's really, we need to live by the, the, platinum rule, which is that I will do unto others as they will have would like to have done unto them. It's not that I'm going to try and interpret what they want. It's I'm actually going to listen and understand and say, oh, you, you may not want what I want, but I can actually understand what you want and help you get that. And yeah, you know, whether it's, you know, understanding or, you know, help that person you know, understand that person's situation and help them maybe find a path to getting that that next job or or whatever it may be that helps. You know, I, I, the other thing I, I want to mention there too is you know mentors versus supporters. You know, empathetic exchange allows for people to you know develop mentoring relationships, but also it's, we need to go beyond mentoring and also become supporters. I had people throughout my career who not only said, I'm going to help you understand, you know, what it's like to be in higher ed. I'm going to put you up for this next position. You know, I'm going to encourage you to apply for this next job. And so empathetic exchange goes beyond just, you know, putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, right? It's, it's actually understanding each other's Differences and similarities, and a lot of times in my workshops, it, sometimes I have to focus on look at how this person may look and be different from you in many ways, but you have these ways that you are actually are similar and can find understanding. So there's a, it's a, you know, there's a lot of different ways that that empathetic exchange can happen.
1: Yeah, I feel like one of the challenges is, um, and you note this in your book, is that individuals saying, "Well, I, I'm, I'm not racist." I mean. And they kind of get defensive about it because they feel That's like right. they shouldn't assume responsibility for other people's actions, for what's happened in the past. And so, you know, I wonder how then we contend with that as a society. And that these structures are in place. Right. A lot of people are like, oh,
2: especially and I even I had this mentality when I was growing up. Oh, look how successful I've been. You know, clearly, you know, racism is going away. And we felt like we were on this trajectory where. You know, racism was in the decline, and I think it was a a, you know a very uh, sad day um, in you know November of 2016 when we elected somebody who was clearly racist and um, you know was pursuing an agenda that was not supportive of many women and and ethnic and racial minorities. And so, um, but what we have to understand is, you know, what why did that happen? What are the structures that that led to this? And a lot of it is kind of the blowback to, you know, having a black president. Um, and, you know, basically, you know, I talk about white fragility and, and white people, you know, even you know that we all live in the sea of white supremacy.
1: Yeah, as a woman, I experience this defensiveness by men who say, well, you know, not all men, right? We, we Why do you mm-hmm. see us as potential predators? And it's like, well, because the structures and practices and system is set up in a way that we understand that we are not always safe or often not safe on the street, right? So it's just, it's something that, again, you have to share those stories and you have to understand them and let that other person speak uh, about their experiences and be open to them before you can even begin to mm-hmm. to be able to empathize, right? And And then you have to also leave that defensiveness aside, right? I mean, it's a psychological maneuver, right? It it involves, like you said, being vulnerable and challenging often how you, uh, you know, your daily practices and people are resistant to that. And so this is another thing I really liked about your book because, you know, it brings in so much sociology, history, psychology, and this is what's required, right? We, We need to learn our history, but we also need to alter our behavior and we need to then delve deep into our psyches (laughs) that's That's right
2: absolutely because this is you know very much a psychological thing you know it's you know this internalized oppression I mean I had to really sit with that for a long time and understand how, not just me personally, but my parents were impacted by it, how it impacted our family, the way we were raised. And, and, you know, to come back to one of my stories, you know, I talk about the fact that my parents chose for us to grow up in a place called Spokane, Washington, which was, you know, 90, at the time, 99%, well, probably about 95% white um, and, you know, not diverse at all. And on top of that, we were raised Catholic and so, you know, we, we were really not, in you know, very integrated into the bl- rest of the black community in Spokane, the, the community that was there, which, you know, you can imagine, I talk about the isolation of internalized oppression. And so my parents, you know, they didn't want us to hang out with other black families or other black kids. And, you know, and, you know, I had a, a wide range of friends, but, um, you know, it just made me feel uncomfortable at times being in black spaces, which, you know, you wouldn't necessarily expect. But that's why I try to show that I've been just as impacted by these things as, as you know, a white person in, in, or a brown anybody. We've all been impacted by this.
1: Yeah. And this actually gets me to my next question. So this um, process of assimilating, uh, right? So, what does assimilation involve? Uh, what is the impact? What are the costs involved in assimilating? And I know you talked about this uh, somewhat with respect to your upbringing in Spokane, Washington. And then, can you maybe discuss uh, the relationship between uh, assimilation and internalized oppression?
2: As I was looking at how my parents raised us, I realized, you know, for, from their perspective, and you know, unfortunately, they were probably right. That if we were assimilated, you know, if we talked a certain way, if we dressed a certain way, you know, if we only associated with certain people, that that would make us more assimilated into white culture and make our lives easier and you know, the reality is, is that's been true. When I'm in white spaces, I, I know how to, and that's not that I'm, I necessarily feel welcome or fit in, but I know how to act in those spaces. So the, one of the proverbs I mentioned is, you know, if you're black, you have to, to work twice as hard to get half the credit. And I've lived by that in certain ways. You know, it's like, I know, like when I was, became an academic, it's like, I knew my district, like I picked, everybody's surprised at how hard you know, I picked a really tough dissertation committee and I said, I picked that dissertation committee because I know that I I'm going to get that good job. I have to prove that I, you know, I didn't have it easy. You know, I, I, I had to jump through all the same hurdles or even more hurdles than, you know, the typical student. And, you know, cause people just, Oh, you know, you got by on affirmative action. It's like, no, I got by because I worked damn hard in graduate school and, you know, getting my, my first set of publications done. And, Um, you know, and there's always this, you know, need to constantly strive and and succeed. Um, because, you know, there's always kind of that voice in the back of my head saying, you know, you have to be, you know, that much better. And so the more I can was assimilated into, you know, being able to talk a certain way and so on, you know, the easier it could be in in doing those things. But then, you know, from another perspective, it's like, you, you tend you lose out on certain aspects of your culture. And so that was what was very frustrating to me.
1: Yeah, I was thinking about this because a lot of this is performance, right? You're exactly. performing a particular identity of what's expected of you. And then the dominant group says, well, look, if you just work hard and you do these things and you act like us, well, then mm-hmm. you'll succeed. But if you deviate, what we define as deviate, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, then, you know, because you are not assimilating to the dominant culture, uh, that the way we've written it, right? Um, well, then, you know, it's, it's your fault. It's your fault. Right. You are to blame for your situation. And so performativity... Uh, Or performing these identities can be the path to success. But as you uh, underscore in your book, it can also be the source of uh, existential crisis um, and loss, right? Because Mm -hmm. you can't really be you. And then often you're kind of stuck in this limbo, right? Where do I belong? Mm Hmm. Yes, and
2: um, you know, unfortunately, I've seen it in in many people who, especially those of us who, you know, maybe first generation college goers, we make it into these institutions like Stanford and UCLA. And you know, luckily, I was. I feel very privileged that I had colleagues, especially in graduate school, um, who I could you know connect with and and reach out to, and and I still talk to you these days. Um. In Uh, understanding, you know, where we're coming from and, and how we've made it to where we are, but how to, you know, in many ways, I've had to reclaim my blackness, and um you know be become comfortable with who I am, and so that's been that was kind of a, a what I call my twenties you know my years of cognitive dissonance because on the one hand, you know you get the messages, you know, black is beautiful and wonderful, and so on, and yet you know I had this other message coming from my parents that's like, oh no, you know, you can't hang out with those people and, and so on and you know this comes back to this idea that's very topical of respectability politics. Um, in our field of political science, we talk about this idea of respectability politics being this idea that, you know, in order to be successful politically or or economically, you know, you have to act a certain way. And and basically, you know, it's that assimilation issue again. Um, And so, you know, kind of some of the the different, and I won't say, you know, that any way, one of the things I want to emphasize is that there's no one particular way to be Black, right? But, there are certain things that are, are imposed on us um, in order to be successful. Um, and I think hair is one of the um, more interesting components of that. You know, I've, I've been wearing my hair natural most of my life. I've, You know, I switch it up and so on. But, you know, for a long time, what black women felt like they had to straighten their hair to be accepted, especially in academia and, you know, the business sector and so on. So, so that's, you know, just one example of how this plays out.
1: Yeah. And actually building on that, I was going to ask about intersectionality because you talk, obviously, the importance of acknowledging that we are uh, a multitude of different identities, right? And so they mm-hmm. affect how we navigate in the world. And so how does this uh, intersection of race and gender then influence behavioral expectations for Blacks? And, you know, maybe talk about your experience as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, of
2: course, huge. You know, this whole issue of intersectionality. And and of course, um, it's another thing that Kimberly Crenshaw is is known for bringing to the fore along with critical race theory. But, um, you know, this idea of intersectionality makes it clear that you don't, I mean, for one, from my perspective, initially, is that it's, it allows me to be more than one thing, right? I can be black, I can be a woman, I can be a French speaker, you know, which is very interesting, of course, coming to a place like Montreal, where language is such a huge issue. So, you know, even just the fact that I I speak French can be something that defines me in a particular way in a particular space. And so this idea of intersectionality is really important to understanding how things affect us as a, a complete human being, right? because we each have different aspects of ourselves that are are it's the way that society responds to those different aspects of ourselves that become cumulative and then impact us in, you know, ways that we, we may not realize. And so that's something that I I again had to sit with for a long time is this idea of, you know, being black, being a woman, you know, I, I'm, I'm no longer practice Catholicism, but you know, I have that that you know, I feel like when you're raised Catholic, it has a certain imprint on you. Um, you know, growing up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, you know, people assume when you're black, oh, you grew up in the South or in the inner city or you're urban. It's, it's really interesting because, you know, a lot of times in academia, when we want to avoid saying black or brown, we, we use the term urban um, as a way to talk about it, which is kind of interesting in and of itself. But, um, you know, it... it we have to be willing to be open to a whole range of identities and not pigeonhole people. Oh, you're a woman, so X Y Z, or you're black and i Z. I'm a, you know I'm a black woman. I have you know all kinds of experiences in my life. You know, it, and it comes back to you know where I talk in the book about people always asking me why I study Europe, and you know, that's a part of my identity is learning French, learning German, you know, and being able to do that kind of work.
1: Yeah, I, I just find um, your life trajectory really interesting. And I was going to actually have you talk a little bit about how on that trajectory. So, you know, becoming a political scientist and then being the founder of an educational initiative for the promotion of women in leadership positions. How did your path to empathy kind of unfold? Can you talk a little bit about how you developed self-empathy and then why this matters uh, or mattered uh, subsequently for your career trajectory, personal trajectory?
2: Great. Well, I have to go back to one of my favorite stories, which is uh, I'm a big Star Trek fan. And I remember when I was young watching Star Trek and there's this one episode called The Empath. And it's about a woman who, um, you know, Kirk and McCoy are land on this planet and, and uh, Spock, of course, and they, they meet this woman and, you know, she helps, she can um, help them not only with, um, you know, their, just feel, feeling their feelings, she actually takes on their pain um, when she is, uh, you know, with them. And so... it it really struck me. And I was like, oh, I, you know, I'd love to be an empath. And and I always felt like I had that capacity to feel what other people were feeling. So um, that always stuck in my head. But also, I realized growing up that my ability to really connect with people by trying to put myself in their shoes um, was something that helped me you know, throughout my career, uh, just my willingness to be open and, and trying to understand other people's thoughts and ideas, and not, and I guess part of the reason I got there is because I got tired of people judging me. <laughs> you know, I, I got tired of people just assuming because I'm a black woman, you know, that I must be X, Y, and Z. And so I, I learned, you know, relatively early on in life that not to make assumptions about who people are based on what they look like. And I tried to carry that into my broader career. And it also opened up, you know, avenues for me um, in my job. You know, sure, I I may be a black woman, but that doesn't mean I have to study just race and politics. You know, I can study European politics. I can study the radical right. I can, you know, so I I really tried to, you know, allow myself that space to to do what I felt like I wanted and, and was good at, not necessarily what. Even my own disciplines that I should be doing, um, and so that was a big part of it as well. Is just you know letting people be who they are, <laughs> and not trying to impose my ideas or others' ideas of who they should be. And so that you know, as I mentioned, you know, my twenties were my years of cognitive dissonance because I, I felt like I had this tape go running in my head of. You know, well, you should be this and you should do that. And I, I finally got to my late 20s, and it was around the time I started dating my husband. You know, I realized, damn it, I just have to be who I am. I got to stop trying to fit other people's ideas of who I should be. So that was a huge part of it. And then, as I got, you know, older and you know, watched my own sons kind of grappling with their mixed race heritage and so on, I realized, you know, th- there's all these different ways that we have to struggle with our identity, and and I wanted to also let them know that, you know, I, they they weren't alone in their struggle. And that, um, you know, I understood what they were going through as well. So, so, you know, there's a lot of different things that happened throughout my life that I could go into in a lot more detail. But the basic gist of it is that I really tried to, you know, tap into that empathy and try to be more understanding of people. And I think that's really helped me career wise in terms of people being willing to talk because I, I would listen. And also um, being more empathetic with myself when I started to really be down on myself or, you know, or, or even angry with my parents for the way we were raised and, and so on. So, yeah, that's, that's a big part of it.
1: Yeah, your discussion of multiple identities reminded me of uh, the author Chimamanda Gozi Adiche who talks about the singular story and the cost of essentializing individuals and defining them according to one or two characteristics, and also the burden uh, that is placed upon them, because of course then they are expected to be essentially spokespeople, right, for their racial group, for their ethnic group, for their gender, and so on and so on. And in your book, you talk about how these individuals are supposed to be kind of cultural mediators. So maybe you can talk a bit about the emotional labor involved in being a cultural mediator and this expectation that you are a representative for your ethnic or racial group.
2: Yes, absolutely. I hear this story all the time. You know, You might be the only black student sitting in a room and the issue of slavery comes up and everybody's head turns to you as if you're going to be the one who can explain it. And, you know, this happens all the time. And I remember my sister, uh, my older sister, who worked worked at IBM for many years, you know, talked about how, you know, she was in a room where, you know, the the, um, executive was... You know, praising everybody, and he praised everybody in the room except her, and she was the only black woman in the room. And you know, she ran out of the room after because it she it was just like, you know, so insulting. And those are, you know, and that's why I, I hesitate to call those things microaggressions because they're, they're actually aggressions. Um, and so, you know, we're we're it's not only that we're expected to be the cultural mediators, but we're often you know overlooked. You know, we're invisible. Um, Or, you know, I have this has happened a few times in the last few years. I have a couple of friends who've been at conferences and because they were dressed nicely in a suit, people thought, you know, these are black women. They thought they were working at the hotel. And I've had this happen to me before. I mean, I'm getting too old for this to happen anymore. But, um, you know, where you're at an event and somebody assumes you're the server. Um and so it's not just being the cultural mediator in these instances where, you know, you're in a classroom and you have to explain slavery to your white colleagues, but um it's also these instances where you are you're made to be invisible or you're you know you're considered to be part of the staff because of course if you're there, the only reason you're there is because you're part of the staff. And these are the things people don't think through. That's why they're um, you know, these happen all the time because people don't step back and think, Oh, you know. I'm not going to make any judgment about who this person is. Let me ask, you know, instead of saying, asking a question, like they work there, which you can ask, Oh, excuse me. Um, do you happen to work here? And if not, you know, maybe you could tell me where there's somebody I could talk to, you know, or, you know, in the classroom, uh, it's hard for, I know, sometimes for, for faculty and teachers to step up and say something in those is circumstances, but it's really important that we do, that we set the scene. That we say, you know, hey, we're going to be talking about this topic, and this is a topic for all of us. Um, and you know, even though it may be something we consider, you know, that that a particular person or ethnicity is, is something we all have. It's it's all it's you know, it's everybody's history. It's everybody's story. Um, and so we can't just expect one group or or women or whoever to be the ones to speak up on this topic or to discuss this topic. So, you know, a lot of times I think it's, it's about that being the word that comes back always is it being intentional. And that intentionality is, is what can help us through these issues.
1: I agree. And I think, when it's done in the classroom, uh, I don't think there's ill intent, but the instructor is not thinking this through of what mm-hmm. it, you know, putting, essentially putting the, themselves in the shoes of, of that student, you know, the representative of that race. Um, and so, mm-hmm. yes, we need training seminars, but we need these stories in the classroom. They need to be a central part of the classroom from the get-go, you know, from from kindergarten, right. basically. That's right. Did you want to elaborate? or I was just going to say that, you know, that's why this whole attack
2: on critical race theory is so problematic. Yeah, I call it hypocritical race theory because it's basically, you know, it's not, they're not talking about seriously about what we call critical race theory. They're talking about just the idea of talking about race and, you know, people feeling uncomfortable because we're talking about slavery and, you know, white people were the perpetrators of slavery in the U S and, and so on. And, you know, it's, it, it, it's crazy that we would think that not that we would, divide our history in such a way that only kind of the white version of history is appropriate in the classroom. And to say that our, you know, the broader understanding of history, which includes indigenous people and black people and Asian people, you know, we had the whole Japanese internment and Chinese exclusion. I mean, all of these things are a huge part of our history.
1: Yeah. I mean, as I tell my students, if it's not messy, if, if the history you're studying is not messy, and if it doesn't at times make you feel uncomfortable, then you're probably missing important parts of it. Uh, it's just students, maybe parents, especially parents of younger children, don't want their children to feel that way. And, mm-hmm. you know, th- this is reality. <laughs> I mean, well, the funny you know, thing you know, is,
2: yeah, it's okay if my black child, you know, feels uncomfortable, but God forbid, you know, your white child doesn't feel, you why shouldn't they have the same discomfort that, that my child is experiencing, having to hear these stories about slavery and, and so on. So, I mean, it, we, it's uncomfortable for all of us, but if we don't face up to it, we can't learn from it. Exactly.
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: And I wanted to actually go back to some of your comments about these assumptions people make um, because Mm -hmm. you talk in your book about imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. and I think this also gets back to this multi-layered identity, right, of, of, of being black and a woman. And then, you know, okay, assuming they're part of the help or assuming that they don't deserve recognition during the conference or the meeting because of that. And then, you know, how that can contribute and perpetuate this notion of imposter syndrome. So how did you struggle? Uh, you know, how did you deal with imposter syndrome? And how did you ultimately combat it and get beyond it?
2: Well, it's funny because I still in some way struggle with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um but I try to remind myself it's not imposter syndrome. What I'm experiencing, what I'm feeling is real. It's not that I'm an imposter, it's that others look at me and don't see who I am. Exactly. So yeah. that's how I get through it is I remember that no, it's not that I don't belong here or that I'm not qualified or whatever. It's that these people who are looking at me are making assumptions about me. And I have to overcome that. Right. And and unfortunately, what it means is that, um, you know, again, it's that it's almost the performative aspect of, of how we deal with these issues is, you know, I have to dress a certain way. I have to talk a certain way. And, you know, what, it's funny, especially when I was um, a junior faculty and teaching my class on Western European politics. I'm like, okay, first day of class, I'm going to have to go in and tell them who I am because these students are going to look and see this black woman, you know, teaching Western European politics. And, you know, I have to say, yes, I'm I'm your professor, believe it or not. And yes, I'm teaching European politics and here's my background. And it's like, you have to, to, to you know, create the, the platform so that, uh, you know, they understand. Yes. Cause you know, my, I would go into those situations assuming, you know, the students are going to see a black woman teacher and you know, Wonder what am I in race and politics class? She's like, no, you're in a, a comparative European politics class, <laughs> and um, and those are the kinds we deal with things we deal with all the time. And, and you know, it's not just imposter syndrome; it's it's that it, it, I think you mentioned this before. You know, the stress and strain, the the um, emotional labor we have to do just on a day to day basis to demand that people see us for who we are. Right? That is is what is hard.
1: Right. Because this imposter syndrome, as you said, it's, it's because you've internalized other people's assumptions about you. It's not necessarily how you feel about your capabilities. It's, it's that's that right. you're not getting the recognition you deserve. And so that leads you to kind of question yourself sometimes. And so you have to really fight against that and have confidence in yourself. And that's, mm-hmm. that's a lot of psychological work. <laughs> it is. And, and that's why, that's why mentors are so important too.
2: Yes. Mentors and supporters. And and just, you know, I think one of the things that helped me the most, especially starting graduate school, is having a peer group. And it's funny because I know we're down on social media, but I have to say, you know, being able to keep connections to a lot of my friends in through Facebook is so helpful because I, you know, I can go in there and I know I'm going to get supported. And um You know, there's a certain group of people, you know, basically other black scholars who understand exactly what I'm dealing with and and I can be support for them and they can be support for me. And really, it's having those networks, having those connections is is just so important. And it's a lot of time it's peer to peer. It's not always just having somebody who's, you know, older or or more experienced. But I, I, I really encourage people, especially as they go into graduate school, to develop those peer to peer relationships.
1: Yeah, you need kind of a community <laughs> to mm-hmm, support you exactly. in a support group. Okay, I'd like to move on to uh, a discussion of health. So mm-hmm. in Chapter 4, you examine the relationship between race and health. So how does race affect health outcomes uh, for oh individuals gosh. in the U.S.? And, of course,
2: in this era of COVID, this is even more critical than ever, and you know, the vaccination situation. Um, and so what I found it, so I have to start, of course, with a story. So I, I remember one day I was driving around Berkeley and um, I had yeah, the radio on and, and this story came on in PR about a study that had shown that black women, regardless of class or education, were more likely to have poor maternal and fetal health outcomes. And I was like, wait a second, how can this be possible? And, you know, this was like around 2014, 2015, it must have been 2015. And, and I was just like, how is this possible? In this day and age, that we can have a situation where a black woman, just because she's black, is more likely to lose her child or lose her life, right? We I tell this. There's many stories. There's a great New York Times magazine article about this, and but also Serena Williams almost died because they, her nurses and doctors didn't believe her that something was wrong after she had her child, and you know there's all these horrible stories about women whose doctors didn't believe them, and I tell my own story about how my doctors didn't believe me. When I uh, said that I was having issues and I thought I might have endometriosis, even though my sister had it, so you know, there's these ways, you know, and I remember the doctor who did finally believe me said, wow, well, but you've had a lot of doctors tell you that as a black woman, you can't have uh, endometriosis. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, they, they, you know, I've been having pain and issues, you know, for many years and, and they couldn't get a doctor to, to give me a diagnosis. And so he finally did and probably saved my fertility. So I was able later on to have my two boys, but you know, it, it's, it, it's this bias that doctors have and, you know, some of the statistics are just stunning. You know, there's a study of med school students and some ridiculous percentages, 30 or 40 percent believe that black people have thicker skin and therefore don't feel pain the same way that white people do. I mean, and then, you know, of course, the story that opens the book is my father um, passing away from a heart attack. And that's kind of what spurred me on to um, start looking into these issues because, you know, it's like my father was, you know, doing well in his retirement. And, and you know, the fact that, just being a Black male put him at higher risk for heart disease and and a heart attack was just shocking and stunning to me at the time.
1: Yeah, I've read a lot about this as well, and certainly the maternal mortality rate, just the pre and postnatal health that Black Mm -hmm. women experience. I'm wondering how radical empathy can help serve to improve health outcomes for Blacks, given that we have a healthcare system that discriminates, in which you have especially people who are reliant on uh, Medicaid, how can radical empathy serve to kind of reduce these inequalities in, in health care?
2: Well, on the side of the physicians, they need to understand that they, you know, and this is starting to happen. Medical schools are starting to pay attention to this and, and actually, you know, to help these, you know, these, um, you know Medical students understand that they they, that these biases exist. So I I, I cite a lot of the research that talks about this, and so the medical profession itself is starting to address these issues um, and having it be a part of graduate or medical school rather. Um, But also for for black people and others, we need to understand that we have to demand. um, You know, I mean, it's I was talking to somebody the other day about you know how I um, when my brother in law had kidney cancer, you know, we would go, we would make sure that somebody went with him to his appointments because first of all, a cancer diagnosis, I mean, it's really hard for you to focus when you're at the doctor's office, but secondly, to make sure that there was somebody there who was an advocate for him and was asking the questions and making sure he was getting the right medications and so on. And so, you know, as a family, we've kind of come to recognize, okay, you know, sometimes we have to help each other out, um, you know, go to, Uh, doctor visits, um, make sure the right questions are, are being asked, you know, do our own research. So, you know, in a sense it's becoming empowered as a patient and going into these situations, understanding that you have, you do have some, you know, Power to talk to your doctor about these things, and if you're not getting the right kind of care, you know that you should see somebody else. But obviously, that's very difficult for people on Medicare, Medicaid. You know, very few doctors. You know, or it's hard sometimes to get in to see a doctor. So it's really going to take change in our medical care system. You know, I'm living in Canada now, and I'm going to get to sample the Canadian system. I'm, I'm interested to see how it functions and if it does. Um, help to ease some of these biases. But it, it can ease some of the biases in terms of access to care, but it can't necessarily ease the biases of doctors if they are not learning that they, they have to to fight against these inherent biases that they are, are working from.
1: Yeah, so which would require, obviously, as you said, a different type of framework while they're in medical school, or at least learning about different types of experiences uh, when mm-hmm. they're in medical school, so they can be attentive to that. I'd like to talk uh, about your experiences in academia. So, you know, you talked about some of the challenges you faced while uh, at Stanford and then just in your early years as a professor. Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about what it's like uh, being Black in academia and then also how radical empathy can play a role in uh, reforming basically Mm -hmm. our educational system more generally? So not just academia, but, you know, on all levels. Right. And you know, I, I talk a
2: little bit about this this idea of, you know, being exceptional.
1: So you know, one of the
2: things I ran into a lot was that, oh, you know, yeah, you're black, but you know, you're you're special or you're different. And and that, you know, would drive me crazy because it's like, yes, I, I made it this far and I have to be one of be one of the few black people who made it into, you know, getting a PhD and, and getting those first few jobs. But you know, the reality is that uh, in some ways I was lucky, (laughs) you know, it's like, obviously I'm intelligent, but there are a lot of people who don't have the access to, you know, just you know, obviously, my parents made a decision to have us grow up in Spokane, Washington, because they knew we would have better schools. You know, I mean, my mom was part of the Great Migration and left Louisiana to go to Los Angeles, where she met my dad. And so parents are actually, you know, a lot of the, the reasons why people left during the Great Migration from the South was because they, they were hoping for, you know, the kind of outcome I represent, which is that, you know, I was able to go to better schools and, and eventually go to college and, and get a you know, PhD and, and so on but that it's still, you know, considered very exceptional. And we need to get to the point where that's not so exceptional. And in any case, what I found as I was going through school, I mean, we talked a little bit already about my experience at Stanford, but, you know, again, being put into stereotype boxes and and being expected to do certain things. And, um, you know, and, you know, I was an athlete. I ran track my first two years at Stanford, but, you know, that was, I was at Stanford because I was there to, to study and go to school. So I quit after a couple of years and, um, you know, I but I found that um, especially as I got into graduate school, just being first generation was difficult. But, and then um, when I went to, um, when I was recruited by UCLA, because I'd gotten a diversity fellowship and I remember sitting in the room of, with other fellowship, uh, people had gotten offered fellowships and were considering attending, you know, UCLA, um, the professor's, oh, well, you all got this certain number on, on the SAT or the GRE. And I'm like, well, I didn't get that on the GRE, but, you know, I still belong in this room. And, you know, the way we use things like, you know, the GRE scores and all that is so ridiculous. You know, I always tell the story of me and my friend Vince Hutchings. We were, he was a couple years ahead of me at UCLA. And, you know, he had come in from – he uh, he did, went to community college and then did his undergrad at, at San Jose State, and he got a similar diversity fellowship like I did at UCLA. He's now one of the top um, – you know, uh, political scientists in the United States, you know, he's at university of Michigan, he's worked on the national election study, you know, he's anyway, so, you know, off the charts, great. And so we make all these assumptions about people and, and you know, as we admit them to graduate school, as we, you know, how they say work through the system, you know, what they should study, um, you know, how they should, you know, uh, be dealt with in, in various ways. And, um, And academia is still a very, you know, it's very difficult to change the status quo in academia. Like I said, we haven't seen a major increase at all of black faculty, although I am now at McGill to do that specifically. Um, And so, you know, one of the ways that I'm trying to create change is, you know, I wasn't looking to to leave my nice cushy consulting job, which of course I was working 90 hours a week at because being an entrepreneur is very (laughs) difficult. But, um, you know, I, 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 you know, this opportunity popped up and, you know, a friend from McGill reached out and then they were like, wow, you know, you got a great background. And I was like, well, you know, I've, you know, I've been offered lots of other positions, but to the chance to work on a, a strategy that is specifically focused on black faculty to, because of course, McGill has dismal numbers in terms of black faculty and black students, um, and to say, yes, we are going to try and create an environment where not only we can recruit these faculty, but we can keep these faculty, that we can bring in the students, that we can create a pipeline. And I would encourage anybody who's interested, I've created, uh, at if you go to com, we've created a transnational black scholars group specifically to create that pipeline. And that's the kind of action that we have to take is to say, we are going to focus specifically on black people. We are going to focus specifically on di- indigenous people. You know, this whole kind of nebulous idea of diversity, of course, you know, um, means that it's too easy to, you know, oh, we're going to hire this white gay male. Nothing against, you know, white gay males, but, you know, it means that we aren't necessarily focusing on, you know, black women or black men or indigenous. In and I mean, the whole situation with indigenous is just scandalous. And so, um, I think that uh what we really have to do and what I've decided you know I took this job specifically to do I'm I'm also going to teach political science and comparative immigration politics but I'm going to be working in with um you know departments and and colleagues to figure out how we can move forward and um hire more specifically black faculty. And I keep telling you, I'm going to be very focused. You know, we have numbers, we have outcomes, and that's really the way to create change.
1: Yeah. I think also related to this uh, is when you have recommendations uh, made by well-known faculty for a particular post, because, you know, it was for so long an old boys network Mm -hmm. um, that we need to see more of that as well. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously it's word of mouth is also important. And I, yeah, I understand what you're saying about this kind of. It's it's very tokenist in a way. Okay, yes. do we check the diversity box, and have have we been particular about how we uh, designate diversity? Are we? dividing diversity into multiple categories so it's not that's just right. one category on its own. I think that's that's essential. But I think it's also important, obviously, in the classroom, how we teach. You know, we talked about this already, not selecting particular students as being representative of their gender, of their race, of their ethnicity, and also realizing Students and many of them are first year. You know that they might need a little bit more mentoring, right, than mm-hmm. our other students. Not to neglect them, but that we need to be a little more proactive. Often, that's right. Well, yeah. again,
2: I'll come back to the word intentional.
1: <laughs> yeah, intentionality. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, I'd like to talk a little bit about relationships. So you look at love and marriage, talk about the the marriage market uh, for Black women in particular, and then the importance of practicing radical empathy within a a relationship, an intimate relationship. So Mm -hmm. how does this relate to, you know, the story you're telling about radical empathy, but also race, gender equality, these things?
2: Well, I think for a lot of us, this is a a really important part of it is this whole idea of, you know, dating and and relationships and marriage. And, you know, I I talked earlier about my 20s being my years of cognitive, cognitive dissonance. And, you know, part of it was this idea, well, you know, uh, should I marry a black person or what? And I, you know, if I finally figure, it doesn't matter. Just marry the person you love. <laughs> you know? And so, uh, you know, I, I share I share a bunch of the data on interracial marriage and and how that plays out and and so on. And you know that that has become something important. And I, I what's interesting is is I, I talk to a lot of younger women about this, and because a lot of times they feel you know like it's such a hard topic to talk about. And it's one of the reasons I included it in my book is this idea that we, we don't talk about it enough. And it you know, can be very discouraging for young women that they don't have those connections necessarily and, and how do they, they don't understand how to get those connections. And a lot of it is just you know, I, I always say that, you know, you want to be with somebody who makes you feel you know, like you're a better person. In the end, and so it doesn't matter if they're white or black or brown or whatever. You know, it's finding somebody who's compa- compatible. And so if we can get past these racial divides and, you know, just learn to love each other, <laughs> you know, when you get right down to it, for who we are, then that's where radical empathy steps in. You know, seeing really seeing the person for who they are. I think that's what's really critical to relationships
1: which really isn't that radical at all. When you get right down to it, it seems like it should be something natural, right? Pretty self-evident. And certainly what you had to say about cultivating relationships is universally applicable. So I'd like to move on to the topic of leadership now and the relationship specifically between leadership and radical empathy. When you talk about how uh, radical empathy can be transformative for academia, for the professional world. But how can radical empathy uh, be an engine for change in politics?
2: Well, what's critical is that we understand that we are living in this world of structural racism. And so we can't just put patches over things and expect to create change. We really have to understand that it's the underlying systems that are problematic. So when it comes to things like banking, you know, we can't just say, oh, we're going to give a certain number of loans to, to Black people. That's not going to change the underlying problems. We have to look at it as a system. And that's why I look like the book, um, Heather McGee's book, The Some of Us, because she looks at these things as systems and make, helps people to understand that just because you improve the situation for black or brown people, it doesn't mean that the situation for white people is going to get worse or that you're going to lose out. Um, actually, you know, economic, she's an economist and, you know, economically, we know that if you, you know, improve the life and, and life situation of one group, it helps another, it can help the other group. And that's particularly true in this situation. And so, um, I, I think it's it's really important to understand that we have to say, okay, it's not just banking, it's real estate, it's um, you know, access to capital, it's it's all these different things. You know, I know as an entrepreneur access to capital is really, really difficult. So we have to be, again, intentional. The policies have to be intentional. We have to say, Okay, historically these people have been treated badly or haven't had access to X, Y, and Z. We have to be intentional about giving them access today and to try and make up. That's why I believe I, I always struggled with this idea of reparations, but this is where I see reparations coming into play is to say that, look, you know, 50 years ago, we had the GI Bill, or 60, 70, whatever years ago, we had the GI Bill, and you know, gave all these benefits. Let's turn around and do something similar and have a bill that will support people who have not had access to generational wealth and that have not had access to funding for their entrepreneurial pursuits to make sure that our schools are educating people on an equal basis. I mean, this is really difficult work to do, but it's really the structural change that needs to happen.
1: And it's a choice. It's a political choice. I mean, just as I think countries that were involved in colonizing other countries, right? That they they deserve to give uh, reparations to those once colonized countries. It is the same in the U.S. that we need yeah. to be giving reparations to, you know, Native Americans, Black communities, right, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it can it can be really this important engine for change, right? Mm-hmm. But also acknowledging mm-hmm. the racism and the discrimination and the oppression that is that was central to to that history That's uh, right. and that continues to be. So in chapter six, you talk about leaders you admire. Uh, Maybe you could tell tell us a little bit about some of the leaders uh, you admire. Well, you know,
2: there's a whole lot of them, but some of the women, uh, you know, having lived in Austin, Texas, um, you know, a a couple of, well, actually not just because of Texas, but, you know, Shirley Chisholm is somebody i always really admired. Um, Barbara Jordan, um, you know, and, uh, you know, more recently, even, you know, if, you know, politically, there, they, there are issues with, uh, you know, his presidency, but certainly Barack and, and Michelle Obama um, were people who I, I really felt, you know, were, you know, at the forefront of change and, you know, how important that is. So, um, uh, you know, I think that um, there's so many great role models out there and that, you know, some of them include you know you, i mean there's people from all different parts of you know academia um you know even in you know science and so on i remember you know i i, I said if i had uh, grown up at a, a you know, if i were younger i might have decided to become a mechanical engineer after watching the movie black panther um and because you know the the character shuri was so with all the things she did with her, her uh, experiments and all that. So, you know, there, there's lots. So I think today we have a lot more uh, role models out there um, and women who are doing amazing things. You know, Serena Williams, etc. I'm being athletic. I love watching black women athletes in particular.
1: Yeah, and I was thinking about Stacey Abrams as well in your conversation yes. about how you have individuals come out of, experiences of loss, right? Um, And then they channel their energy elsewhere and look at, of course, ultimately, the net result of that process and how she was able to mobilize so many individuals and I was thinking about that as you were talking about this, this idea of channeling difficult situations and loss into that. And, you know, I also thought it was powerful, your discussion of uh, Emmett Till's funeral, and of course, the mm-hmm. choice that his mother made to have the open casket as a way of demonstrating to the world the injustices and that they are structural, right? Because this is one of the only ways we're going to be able to have global recognition, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I I
2: think that's that's a really important thing to keep in mind in general.
1: And that that can be a a, a way in which you also try to promote empathy. Okay, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the company that you launched, that you founded,
2: Brighter Higher Ed? Yes, and the reason I created Brighter Higher Ed is I realized when I became a vice provost that um, I you didn't really know anything about managing or accreditation or, you know, how the faculty Senate runs and all these things. And and so I realized a lot of us who start out as faculty and move into administrative positions don't always have the information we need to be successful at those jobs. And um, although I did some workshops, they were very expensive. And so I wanted to create something that was, um, you know, basically could create a community of, Uh, practice for those of us who are in leadership positions and then over time it's evolved because of COVID and so on. And also because I wrote this book, um, we're we're focusing more specifically on leadership and um, diversity. And of course, that's what I'm doing in my job here at McGill, but also more broadly, we've got workshops and trainings that we can do um, and i we've done for different types of, of groups um, that aren't just on academia. It's not just about academia anymore. <laughs> it's just about diversity more broadly. And so we have developed courses and so on. And, and actually, um, you know, as this grows and builds, we're looking at ways to um, train people so that they can become better facilitators, or um, if they're working in EDI, that they have better grounding um, through the radical empathy approach. And so um you know, I think that, that there needs to be a lot of work done in this arena. Everybody talked to says, "Oh yeah, we need more training for faculty you know, on a variety of fronts." So I'm hoping that that work actually will continue. Um, I'm not CEO of the company anymore, but the the work is continuing, and that I can as somebody who's kind of basically been brought in-house at McGill to do this work that we can continue not only to do the diversity side of things, but also help um, faculty leaders be more successful in helping them understand the different aspects of their jobs.
1: So this is an approach you can apply obviously to the professional world as well outside of academia. Absolutely. Most definitely. So I'd like to return to this uh, issue of, uh, reparations or restorative justice. So mm-hmm. you talk in chapter eight about how both Germany and South Africa can serve as models uh, for restorative justice in the U.S. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah, it was really interesting when
2: I was studying Germany to learn more about the history of, you know, after the Holocaust. And I talked to a lot of young Germans in particular, particular, back in the 90s and, and early 2000s about their experiences of you know, learning about the Holocaust and so on and realized that this idea of you know restorative justice played a big role in Germany's you know, recovery after World War II and you know the way they have these book uh, these um, uh, Stolperstein uh, that you uh, acknowledge that a particular person lived in a home and the idea is that you would trip over it um, so that you would notice that this was the home of somebody who was lost in the Holocaust. Um, But then also you have South Africa, which I was able to visit in uh, 2016, um, that had gone through this truth and reconciliation process. And so I thought it was really interesting. And there's a book and I'm going to forget the name of the author right now but um, about learning from the Germans um, and that, you know, kind of contrasting how South Africa has dealt with. Its history of, um, you know, basically both have dealt with certain aspects of genocide, um, you know, racism, and so on. And um, that here in the U.S., I think part of the issue and why we're seeing this backlash right now is that we haven't dealt with our history, um, and that we haven't, you know, it's it seems like we've come to this point, you know, especially in the last year of, um, you know, a reckoning, and yet. It, it's almost like, it's it's like a wave it's like you know we had this big wave and there was kind of a reckoning and now it's petering off and you know that's why so many of us are trying to grab on to this moment while we can um, because I do think it is a moment when we we hopefully can start to bring in ideas around truth and reconciliation. And I think truth is the number one important thing right now, because we aren't ready to get to reconciliation. We, we need the truth to come out. We need the people to understand. And, you know, like last summer, so many people were buying books and trying to read up on it and trying to understand. And, and I do think we're seeing some backsliding on that now. And So it's going to be really critical that we stay on top of this and make sure people are learning that we don't let these critical race theory bills and legislation stop our children from learning the truth about our history.
1: Yeah, I, I agree fully. And I am thinking, you know, what, what kind of concrete examples um, of radical empathy? So what kind of practices might we use? Might we mobilize to at least work towards restorative justice? So, you know, obviously there were marches, but that's just the beginning
2: Yes, that's the the, the minimal. <laughs> I mean, not that the, they were, weren't were important, but, you know, the, the marches have to lead to, to clear action. And so we're seeing that in some of the bills that are being proposed, um, you know, around, but really, especially around things like um, policing, that has to happen at the local level. And that's where everybody can play a role. Like I said, even if it's just writing a letter to your city council, Get together with a group of your friends uh, where you live or your neighborhood, and have everybody sign a letter to the city council saying we want to see change in the way that uh, policing works. You know, I was able to meet you know, when, when I was still in Menlo Park with the the local police chief and talk about different ways they could move forward. So, I mean, everybody can do different things. Not everybody's going to go out and you know speak at a city council meeting or or, or you know send a letter to their congressperson, but you know there's everything from you know working on legislation you know you can work with lobbying organizations and 501c4s that are are advocating for positions that you agree with and think can create change um, Sending money to organizations that are are doing the work, you know, encouraging your own companies um, to take on this work in a meaningful way and not just come out with the statements. I mean, there's so many things that you can do. Um, And actually, each chapter of the book ends with a series of action, potential actions. And there's also, for those who are interested, a free reading guide um, that's available at the uh, Policy Press website for my book that talks about, you know, that just kind of lays out the different actions you can take very clearly in a short form.
1: Wonderful. I hope readers will take a look. I'm also, of course, thinking of the efforts to uh, remove Confederate statues and other similar monuments, and Mm -hmm. some of that's been effective, right? So Mm -hmm. um, we see students and others uh, rallying around this, which is promising. It's, It's hopeful. I was wondering if you could just give us a an example or two of some of the readings that you list in your book. So at the end of your book, you have a list of suggested readings that people can read and helping them work towards uh, radical empathy. So maybe you can just highlight a few of them. Sure. Of course, it,
2: a lot of people have heard of Abraham uh, Kendi's uh, book, uh, Stamped from the Beginning, which I think is a really great historical perspective. There's a 1619 project um, and the readings that... Uh, we're in the New York Times Magazine. There's White Fragility. There, is, um, uh, there are more recent books that have been coming out, like Heather McGee's The Some of Us. Um, there's the, uh, and I'm going to forget the name of the author, but Learning from the Germans. And all these books are, are listed um, uh, on the uh, reading guide as well as at the end of the book. Um, but I, I've really found um, there's some really great work being done right now around these topics. Um, and I'm, you know, finding new books every day that uh, are really helpful. One of the ones I really love is called Homegoing by Yaa and that one really helped me understand, for example, the connections between Africa and, and Af- being African and African-American for those who want to deep delve into their, their, those deeper histories.
1: Well, thank you for the excellent suggestions. And I'll also remind our readers that you provide reading lists at the end of every chapter. So um, I think this is an essential book uh, for everyone, for the classroom, for a general reader. And uh, I hope everyone does read it. And now that we're at the end of the interview, uh, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about your forthcoming book.
2: Yes, yeah, so that one is on the roots of racism and really look at the looking at the transatlantic connections around race going back to the 1400s and how racism developed and and the the slave trade was developed by Europeans um and really the the interactions and connections that have developed over time between the US and Europe around these ideas of racism. So and also bringing it into the discipline of political science. Um, to understand how racism has played a role throughout the history of the discipline itself. And that's why, you know, it's so hard to find uh, African-Americans outside of you know, studying race and politics in our, our discipline of political science. So it's really designed to address issues in the discipline, but more broadly help people understand how Europe and the U.S. are intertwined in these issues of race.
1: Well, it sounds really interesting and an important and indeed essential reading for first-year political science students. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And um, I I highly recommend your book. And I wish you uh, the best of luck on your new projects.
2: Thank you so much. It's been fun to talk to you today.